1: When Brian Wecht and I organized our very first Story Collider show, all we knew was that we were excited about the idea of bringing people together to tell stories about science. Six years, 150 shows, and nearly 300 podcasts later, we know a lot more. But this idea of all kinds of people coming together around a shared love of science and story, that still drives everything we do. If you love what we're doing, let us know. Email, tweet, or best of all, go to storyclutterorg support to make a donation. Whether you've come to dozens of our shows or this is your first time listening to us, whether you can give a large one-time gift or commit to $5 a month, or leave us a review on iTunes or recommend us to a friend, everything helps, and thank you for being a part of this. We'll see you next year. A science story, huh? The, and I, I felt, felt I, right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well, figured it, wow. out. it was fine. that oh. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Marianne Allen. It was recorded in July 2016 at E-Town Hall in Boulder, Colorado.
0: We stood out back of the church, a couple of awkward little girls talking about boys and parents and the greatest hit on the radio, Achy Breaky Heart. We thought we were really cool. My friend leans over to me and says, I don't want to hang out with her. She's different. Now, I knew Lovey was different. You could see Lovey was different. She had a long forehead. She had almond eyes. And she didn't keep up in youth group discussions. She was five years older than me, and I could follow them better than she could. But I never really thought about Lovey being different. I mean... She was like me. She had blonde hair. She loved singing off-key just like I did. We would sing at the top of our lungs. There's a flag flown high. We enjoyed ourselves. She was like me. So when I had to make the choice, when my best friend told me she didn't want to hang out with Lovey, I didn't know what to do. Sometimes I chose really well. Sometimes I would say, no, I want to include Lovey anyway. Come on with us. Sometimes I didn't choose so well. Sometimes I excluded her. I knew that her mother wouldn't let her go outside with us um, unless she asked. So I would sneak off before she could. And I felt really, really guilty. But I gave in to that peer pressure. Several years later, 20, I was a cancer researcher. Now, cancer research is awesome. There are a lot of people with cancer. It's, It's a horrible thing, and everybody knows that. Um, $5.6 billion a year by the federal government in funding, and I was enjoying myself. But I was faced with an opportunity. My previous boss had gotten a new job. He was going to be running the Linda Cernik Institute. The Linda Cernik Institute studies Down syndrome. Now, years and years ago, I'd known that Lovi had had Down syndrome. She had an extra copy of chromosome 21. I didn't really get what that meant, but, you know, it made her a little different. I hadn't noticed so much. But I'd always wanted to know more about Down syndrome because I liked Lovey. So I started going to their monthly meetings, and boy, did I learn stuff I didn't know. A hundred years ago, people with Down syndrome generally didn't survive past eight years old. But now we've got heart surgery, and that heart surgery can make them live almost to normal lifespans, not quite, but close. And I enjoyed learning about Down syndrome. I learned all sorts of stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that there was problems with muscle weakness and constipation and obesity. But I learned some really neat stuff, too, some really positive stuff. Like, did you know they they almost never get solid tumors? Certain types of cancer are so rare in them that scientists have noticed. They they don't tend to get breast cancer. And so these, these meetings were really fun. They were really interesting. I learned a fact about Alzheimer's, though. About half of the people with Down syndrome get Alzheimer's by 40 years old. And I realized Lovey was 40 years old. I hadn't talked to her in years. My parents had moved away. But they knew some friends and knew some friends who could get us back in contact with their parents. So a couple days after Christmas, I got in contact. I wanted to go see Lovey again. Showed up at her house. She goes by Levina now. Lovey was her name when she was a kid she works at a restaurant we talked about our jobs she fills the salad bar and her boss thinks she's really good at it and we both talked about how we love computers and the internet and such cool things out there nowadays that we didn't have when we were kids she sat and read my daughter a story it was a really fun visit when we went to left leave uh, her mother pulled me aside and she said to me you know, lovey never forgot you She remembered you, and she remembered you as someone who included her, someone who wanted to say hi and wanted to see her. I felt a little guilty. I could remember those times where I hadn't. But she didn't remember those. She remembered the inclusion, not the exclusion. So I went back to my job and continued to go to these monthly meetings, learning lots of really neat stuff. One of the saddest things I learned was the amount of funding that there is for Down syndrome in the government. Government doesn't fund a ton of Down syndrome research. They, They fund some, but not near as much as cancer. But I got an opportunity. You see, one set of grandparents had a granddaughter they really loved who had Down syndrome, and a lot of money. And so they had down donated to the university this money in order to do down syndrome research. And anybody who wanted to do down syndrome research who had never done it before could apply for a grant. And I, I wanted to do that. My lab applied for a grant and we got it. I was going to do down syndrome research. I was going to help people like my friend Lovey. And so I started my first project. There was this literature out there that said aneuploid yeast, that's sort of like the closest thing in yeast to Down syndrome, uh, had extra DNA mutations. Maybe that was it. Maybe some of these phenotypes I talked about had something to do with those extra mutations and, and maybe humans had those extra mutations. So I do my first project and it takes about a year because there's paperwork and paperwork because it's human research And you finally get the samples, and you send them off for this thing called sequencing, where they're going to send you back all 6 billion ACTGs in the genome. And I think, I'm going to do this. As soon as the data get back, I'm ready. Well, the data comes back the day before Thanksgiving. It was Wednesday, and the university had closed all of their offices, and therefore shipping was not receiving. But I had gotten an email from FedEx, so I drove over to the Boulder FedEx, And the data wasn't there because they had sent it to the Thornton FedEx. So I thought, okay, no problem. 45 minutes, I'll drive to Thornton, pick up this this hard drive full of data, and I will get to start on this project. And I drive down there, pick it up, drive home. It's really late at night. First thing Thanksgiving morning, I get up, I start processing this data. Now, my husband thinks I'm completely insane. It's Thanksgiving. You're supposed to be eating turkey. But I was really excited. Well, it turns out I didn't get the data that day. This is really complicated data, and it was the biggest thing anybody in my department had ever had to deal with, and so it actually took me about six months to get to the point that we could even look at this type of data, and I start looking at the data. What we'd done is to find out the genome sequence, the DNA of uh, four kids with Down syndrome and their families, and I start looking at them one by one and realize they don't actually have any more mutations like my theory said. I'm disappointed. That was what that was what it was going to be. I was sure of it. Oh man, I was I was wrong. And you get in this day or two where you're disappointed, but you're in research. And if you are in research, you realize failure is normal. 90% of what we do fails. 90% of your experiments fail, 90% of your grants fail. So you're used to it. It's okay. You get over it. <laughs> new theory. Got to have a new theory. So, one of the things I need to tell you about DNA is in that DNA is genes. And those genes are used to make who you are and they're used by something called transcription. They take a gene and uh, a copy is made in RNA. And for each gene in your body, there are different levels of RNA. And so my new theory was we knew there was an extra copy of chromosome 21, and we realized that those genes were higher than they should be because of this extra copy, but maybe those higher levels were affecting everything else, all those other RNA levels in the genome. So I was going to sequence the RNA levels of all of these families. So I start with one family, because this is a little bit more complicated than the other experiment. Grow up all the cells, get the sequencing, send it away, wait and wait for data. It comes back... Um, and I start looking at it. Processing goes a little faster this time because I know a little bit more about what I'm doing. But when I get to the point where I'm looking at where are these differences in RNA, I start with this child with Down syndrome. And I compare him to the rest of his family members. I start by comparing him to his brother. Oh, look at that. There are 600 genes with different RNA levels. This, this is really good. Let's compare him to his mother. Wow, there's way even more than that differences. This is, this is great stuff. Compare him to his father. Wow, there's hundreds of genes here too. I must be looking at something really neat. But there's something that scientists know. You always have to do something called a control. In other words, what did you expect to see? And so in order to find out what I expected to see, I take his brother and I compare his brother to his father. Oh, well, look at that. Hmm, several hundred genes change when I compare the brother to the father. Well, okay, so let's look at the brother compared to the the mother. Oh, same thing, several hundred genes. Of course, individuals vary. Every two people in this room have different RNA levels. And what I realized with the number of differences I was seeing between this child with Down syndrome and all of his other family members was about the same number of difference I was seeing between any two people, at least any two closely related people. And I realized that I couldn't tell which of these differences, if any, were due to Down syndrome. So again, you get to this point, you're like, oh no, oh no, this, this isn't fitting my theory. There were supposed to be hundreds of more changes in the child with Down syndrome than there were with any of his siblings. No, no, they're not. And I was a little disappointed, but then I was a lot disappointed because I realized I was about to give a talk at the Linda Cernet Institute about my data, and I had expected to find lots of things related to Down syndrome, and here I was realizing that most of what I was seeing was probably individual variation, the differences between two people. So I got a little nervous, because I knew what they were expecting to see. And I fretted, and I worried, and then I thought, no, 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 these people are scientists. They understand that the data is the data. They will understand. And I would almost convinced myself of that the day of my talk. But I clearly hadn't because my stomach was still turning (laughs) when I walked up front and I started presenting this data. It was a pretty good presentation uh, until we got to Q&A. When they started saying, you did this wrong. You should have grouped people with Down syndrome against people without Down syndrome. You would have seen the differences that way. You did this wrong. My data is showing differences. Your data isn't, you did this wrong. So I go home feeling dejected, useless. They have just funded me to research Down syndrome for two years. I had expected to find amazing differences, and I had found they were pretty similar to the rest of their family. Again, I was disappointed and dejected. But then I remembered this story I told you guys at the beginning, this story of my friend leaning over and saying, she's different. And I remembered my reaction. Well, yeah, she's different, but she's the same too. And I realized I was back in the exact same situation I had been in 20 years ago <laughs> with all the peer pressure around me saying you need to look at these differences and me going, but, but there's more similarities than differences. I'm still researching Down syndrome and I am looking for some differences, but I've got my secret sauce. I realize they're more similar than they are different. I'm not going to fall for that peer pressure again. I'm going to go into this with eyes wide open. The differences, they may help us do something, but maybe the similarities will this time.
1: That was Marianne Allen. Marianne is a C postdoctoral fellow at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her work focuses on genetically encoded suppressors of the deleterious Down syndrome phenotypes and exploring the molecular basis of expression dysregulation in Down syndrome. Special note before I go on, in two weeks we'll be changing up our format just a bit. Instead of just one story per episode, starting on January 6th we'll have two, so get excited for bonus stories. We're grateful for the support of the Simons Foundation, who helped make this all possible. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hamlin, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Down Syndrome researchers for all that you do. Thanks for listening.